Hey guys, before we get into today's interview, I just want to give a quick shout out to another local podcast that I just recently discovered through one of our guests. Uh, It's called The Outhouse. Uh, Basically, these two hosts, Matt and Aaron, uh, they interview somebody from the uh, LGBTQIA community about their coming out story. So, you know, it's this difficult subject matter that doesn't always get discussed, uh, but they really kind of inject some humor into it, some passion, uh, some honesty. You know, it really gets into a really fun and interesting conversation that even if you're not in that community and you're not, you know, directly relating to it, you really get to learn a lot about this thing that you may never have heard otherwise. Um, so I definitely recommend checking it out. If you're into my podcast, you'll definitely be into this one. Uh, they're on all social media, the Outhouse Podcast. Uh, and if you're searching directly on Apple Podcasts, it's the Out Space House. So give it a shot. I don't think you'll regret it. On to today's episode, I had actor, writer, improviser, and one of my nearest and dearest friends, Tony Latham, on the podcast with me this week. Uh, Tony and I spent a lot of time talking about his past, his origins in theater in this episode, just because I didn't really know too much about it. I guess I'd never really asked uh, what he did before he met me. I guess that says a lot about me as a friend. Uh, But... We had a really nice conversation. We had a beer over at the shop in Tempe. Planes kept passing overhead. We had a laugh. It was a good time. Kick back yourself and enjoy Tony Latham. Welcome to Starving Artist Phoenix. I'm Tony Machete, and I've got Tony Latham on with me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. That's something I've noticed going back and listening to these, like, because I'm almost like 30 people in now by the time this will get released, uh-huh. is like, every time I ask that question, every time I start it off, I laugh at myself, and like, <laughs> the other person laughs too. Yes. It's just like, I, I've thought about somehow introducing a different, like adding a cold open or something, but I feel like there's something very genuine about that. You need a catchphrase. Or it's just like a sympathetic laugh. It's like, you're laughing, I'll laugh too. That seems like something fun. <laughs> a catchphrase, it just has to be something that would be synonymous with you. So you'd be like, like I don't know, welcome to Starving Artist, where I'm going to starve you. Are you feeling starved today? And then they could be like, no. <laughs> And then you're like, okay, well, let's segue hard into the next topic. Tony <laughs> when was the last time you ate? <laughs> I don't know, six hours ago, I guess? Um, so, Tony... Let's talk about Tony. your mom. <laughs> How are your parents doing these days? Oh, my gosh. Okay, let's jump right in. Right, okay. First. I have to cut all of that now. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, so Tony and I go back quite a ways, which is nice. Um, a couple of weeks? Yeah, no, we just met recently, and, like, we've really hit it off, which it's, is great. Yeah. Um, but, Actually, I'm your other personality. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting there. You're speaking in tongues. I'm actually like running from one seat on this bench to another. Yeah. I'm doing this just on the little funny voice, which is kind of stupid because it's like not video or anything. <laughs> no one will know the difference. <laughs> but you got to get into character. So, um, so I I don't know if I've ever really asked like how you got started in arts and like what was your first introduction to theater. Oh, okay. So uh, I started doing theater in high school, my sophomore year of high school. Well, technically, I st- I did one play when I was like in like 
fifth grade or something where I played the narrator. I was supposed to be off book, like I was supposed to be memorized, and I totally wasn't. And But they were like, that's okay, you can have the script in front of you. But then I was so scared that I just sat on stage with the script in my lap while the teacher read it. And I just sat there and <laughs> stared at the audience. So that was bad. But then uh, I decided, oh, why not do uh, theater in high school? Because I wanted to do band, but I wasn't allowed to do band because I wanted to do, I wanted to play the saxophone. Um, but my sister Amber said I was not allowed to play the saxophone because she wanted to play the flute. But my sister Courtney played the flute, and so she wasn't allowed to play the flute. So it just like continued down <laughs> from there. So I was like, okay, well, I can't play the saxophone. I can't be in band. What else can I do? And Amber was also doing drama. And I was like, well, this is the perfect time to stick it to her. So I did drama too. Uh, and she only did it for a couple of years, and I ended up doing it longer. Um, and it was just... Uh, it was something that I really kind of felt included in. You know, like theater is a very inclusive art. You know, uh, we don't like to be specific or selective. We're all kind of weirdos and wonky. So um, I really felt at home. And where it was in my life, like in high school, is that theater came at such a perfect time that I like transitioned from one group of friends to another and have been doing theater ever since. And even when I was like choosing places to go to college, um, when I, I decided to go to NAU up in Flagstaff, that um, I originally wanted to be a political science major with a minor in theater, but the way that the the like requirements fleshed out is that like I couldn't double dip any of my political science stuff, right? Because of my first major, so I was like, yeah. well, I'll just make that my second major and then do theater primary, and then it just kind of snowballed from there, where I ended up doing more theater than political science. But so, was it something that you automatically uh, recognized that you kind of had a knack for it? Was it something that you kind of saw yourself like comfortable doing as well, or was it really just the atmosphere that? Um, that was the appeal for you and you kind of just practiced until you felt like you were a part of it? Well, I definitely did not feel like it was something I was ever going to do. I always wanted to be an astronomer. Um, I guess growing up, I was more of a passive person. Like, I didn't like to be very in people's faces, even though I was kind of obnoxious, I guess. Obnoxious. <laughs> Obnoxity? <laughs> Is that the right word? The noun of obnoxious? I've never heard it in the noun form. So the obnoxity yeah. of me was not necessarily an endearing thing, but it luckily translated into theater well. <laughs> and so the first show that I did, we did the Susification of Romeo and Juliet. And I was just like, I just wanted to be cast because I was like, I've never done something like this before. And I really wanted to challenge myself. And so I don't know why anyone ever wants to challenge themselves, but I really wanted to. And so I was cast as Romeo and I was just like, I went up to the director and I was like, why? <laughs> Why would you ever do this to me? How could you be so stupid? And he was like, oh, no, you'll be great. And I ended up having a lot of fun doing it. And then um, from there, I just kind of made some more friends and just continued to like audition for shows and getting cast and stuff. And I always thought that every role that I got, I didn't deserve. So I was like, I better make it worth it because this will be my last show that I'll ever do ever. So in my life, everything is do or die. And that was a dying situation. So I was like, okay, well... I'm in this show, I have to make sure that I'm doing the most that I can, and I guess that translates into a drive, which translates into like an ambition and wanting to do better. So, so do you think that? I mean, this is kind of a deep cut early on, but um, do you think that uh, that kind of like imposter syndrome comes up in other areas of your life as well, or do you feel like it's really related to like your t artistic talent? Boy, um, you know, I'm not sure because like I feel like I guess in a lot of ways is that we all feel like imposters unless unless you were just 
destined to do something. Like, I was destined to be king of England, which I wasn't. But if I was, I would know that. But even so, like, uh, I think we all kind of feel like imposters in our own way because we have to, we don't know the field that we're doing. We have to learn our way into it. And so it just becomes like, you know, like I, I'm not naturally akin to doing crunches, but if I do enough of it, I'll get better at it. And then I'll have something to show for it. And then people will be like, well, you've been doing crunches for forever. I guess theater is like exercise or, th- <laughs> or theater is like crunches is what I'm trying to say. But I, it's just, I don't necessarily feel like an imposter now, but I definitely feel like the imposter syndrome has translated into a target on my back, which has translated into like a drive, I guess to put it that way. And that's also another thing I wanted to kind of ask too, is where do you feel like the tipping point was? I mean, because obviously you're not only just doing it in an educational setting anymore, you're, you're actually doing it professionally. So when did you kind of, I guess, take that kind of confidence step and, and say like, okay, I, I can do this. I'm good at this. I guess it would have to be, um, so I, uh, while still at NEU, uh, I was given kind of a note, I was uh, recommended to audition for Canyon Moon Theater, which was in Sedona. I don't think it's still there anymore, but Mary Giraldi, who started it, she's still around in Sedona, so she does some great work. But um, I was uh, recommended to audition, and after auditioning, she told me, she was like, you seem to have a real knack for this. Um, She's like, this may not be the most perfect role for you, but... I really think that you can do well with this. And that was like the first person outside of like someone who's like got a perfunctory sort of necessity to tell me what I need to hear. Um, like any of the professors, like they want to, they want to be educational. They want to be, you know, knowledgeable and push you, but also they kind of need to couch it in sort of a positive tone. You know, like you're not doing terrible. You shouldn't quit your day job period. You know, like that's, so, like, the fact that Mary kind of, like, sat down with me and was very straightforward, very quickly, I was like, okay, this woke me up. And I felt like, okay, I deserve to be here. Like, it was not just, like, a false recommendation. I wasn't the last person on the list. Is that someone recommended me, I auditioned, I got the role, and it was a paid professional gig. And I was like, okay, well, there you go. And so, like, I after that show, anytime I auditioned at NEU or have an audition in the Valley, is that I'm like, okay, this is what I'm destined to do. This is what I need to be doing. And I, I'm allowed to be here. I'm allowed to walk in the door. I'm allowed to audition. I'm allowed to do the show. So is that something that you say, like, a, a step that pretty much anybody who wants to do this, like, has to take? Is there a specific thing that you have to kind of do to match that experience of, like, getting that direct feedback one-on-one? you can do this or not type of thing. I guess in a way I was very fortunate that I had someone like Mary in my life. Uh, I mean, even like the directors like Kate and uh, Kathleen and Mac, everybody and Bob at NEU, like they were all very honest with me because I asked for it. You know, some people... I don't know. Like other actors, they're oh, they, you, you, it's just like any other profession, any other person is like you talk to person A differently than you talk to person B. And I always needed like honesty, like honest feedback. And the professors that gave me honest feedback, I felt like I learned the most from. Uh, and so I guess for an aspiring actor who wants to go out there is to be honest, you know, to I mean, that's the whole business of theater anyways. But um, if somebody is able to give you honest feedback, take it. Um, if someone's, you know, obviously if someone's being kind of like a douche and just like being like, oh yeah, you were terrible. You should just quit your day job. Uh, don't listen to them. But, uh, I think honesty is what you need. You need someone to be able to tell you what exactly you're doing right, what exactly you're doing wrong so that you can fix the things that you're doing wrong and do more of the things that you're doing right. But that's the tricky thing, right? Is that, that's, I feel like a constant battle between directors and actors and critics and all of their friends and stuff like that is that like, 
actor asks for honest feedback that they receive it in some way or another like that sometimes the actors like more responsive to honest feedback or not but like for all of those people around them like they do I, I feel like that's always a struggle of like am I being honest enough and like for the actor I feel like you always have to take away the grain of salt of like okay are they really being honest or are they being a douche who am I saying that they're a douche because I'm being defensive like I feel like there's this always kind of internal struggle whenever you get any kind of criticism of any kind so like I mean how do you how do you vet out what you think is positive or constructive I think that's a very consistent tone with all actors and all <laughs> artists is like am I even doing right like is this even worth doing and if someone's telling me a critique is it even like genuine um yeah every time you i guess every time i hear something that i think is honest i have to be suspicious um and i guess in a way it's like so like doing like phantom toll booth for instance like Dwayne was very honest with me and i knew that he was being very honest because being dishonest with me at that point in time was not advantageous to anybody it'd be disingenuine because it would not produce anything quality um but there have been other times where, like, I'll, like, ask a question or I'll even give a critique because they've asked. And I know that there's, like, sort of, like, an expectation that what I'll say will be, again, couched in something positive so that they'll be able to digest it. No one likes to eat a shit sandwich. Uh, so it just depends on what kind of garnish you want to give with it. <laughs> so it's all the, uh, the que bono, the, what, what's the benefit? So, like, if, right. if you're getting feedback from somebody and they're negative whether they're being saying it in like a harsh way or not or if, you right. know if they're just being negative in some way you have to say like what's the benefit of them telling this are they trying to get a better performance out of me would they enjoy a better performance or are they just really enjoying tearing me down right i think that i think that that's true too um it's even true with like writing so like as a writer as well as that i've had to i mean if anybody who's ever written puts their writing out there they it's so vulnerable because it's your like deepest creative wishes wants dreams you've been working on you've been thinking about it you really care about it and you put it out there and someone's just like that's it's okay uh, you know like it, yeah. you just you just buckle as a writer <laughs> and then you don't know if that is a genuine feedback because that other person could be a writer that other person could just hate you um but it, yeah it's just like very vulnerable to be out there and so you have to kind of hope and wish and dream that the intentions are pure like when other writers have sent me stuff i try my best to be like okay i'm not going to give them a shit sandwich because i don't think that they deserve a shit sandwich i don't think that this is in any way shit so i have to be able to do like um you know focus on the good stuff because we all want to move forward but also these are things that are holding you back so if if i've given people notes like you you've huh. written and you've sent me stuff so Anytime I try and give notes, I try my best to make sure that the notes that are criticisms are not overweighing the positivity. Like, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Everybody wants to be acknowledged. We just also want to make sure that we're producing something worth seeing, I guess. And I will say, every time that Tony has given me feedback on a project, I have burned every copy afterwards <laughs> and not progressed at all. And had <laughs> just a really rough time. Well, I'm just not doing as well as I could. That was a very honest note. It's very honest feedback. I will take that personally. It will hurt me. And I will try and do better. Thank you. Uh, but let's, let's talk about that. We'll jump a little bit around in time. Um, so when did you start incorporating writing into like your artistic pursuits? Uh, gosh. Um, English was always my uh, weakest suit in school, um, so I try and find the weakest points in my life or weakest uh, aspects of my life and just really like put pressure on those and really just dig in deep. Like a, um, what do they call the massage, the um, deep tissue massages, I forget what it's called. Anyways, uh, I forgot what I was saying, but uh, anyways. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> what a deep tissue massage. What is it? Look that up. I'm going to Google it real quick. Um, there will be a link to a deep tissue massage uh, connected to the podcast. But anyways, uh, incorporating writing. So, like, uh, I started writing a little bit uh, my freshman year of college. Um, I wrote for 24-Hour Theater the first time we did that. Um, it was a good experiment. I wasn't sure if I would be any good or if I would even enjoy it. Um, and since then, I've kind of been, just been letting my imagination wander and just writing. Like, I have a folder on my computer that's just filled with, like, probably, like, 200 terrible ideas. It's usually just, like, one or two lines. I'm like, hmm, okay, so this person is standing on the edge of the Empire State Building, and they go, whoops. Next, you know, I don't know what happens next, so I just, like, end it there. Um... So with the 24-hour theater thing, too, since that's that's interesting because I know that that's something you have to apply for as a writer, you know, in that instance at least. So what was your writing sample? What did, what did you feel confident putting your foot forward with at that point? Hey, I got lucky because they didn't ask for dick. <laughs> <laughs> no one wanted to do it. So I was like, hey, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so, yeah, there was no – I just lucked into it. So, like oh. – had they been like I don't know diligent or had any knowledge about twenty? It was the first year that they did it, so to their credit, they were taking a big experiment. But I also capitalized on their ignorance. And this bit. is through NAU. This is through NAU, <laughs> and I was like, "How about this?" And then like, um, uh, and that was like the beginning of a beautiful relationship with Twenty Four Hour Theater. Excellent. So yeah, let's talk about that. So I mean. So, I mean, that's that's an intensive experience in itself, you know, to go through the 24-hour theater process. So, I mean, first off, that was the first time you did it. Why the instinct to do it as a writer, not an actor? Uh, I guess there's a little bit of fear in there. Is that the writing seemed like a safer choice? Like, you've acted uh-huh. for 24-hour theater, um, and there's just a lot of pressure to be had at that first moment. And I guess... Uh, the writing seemed like it would be, like, a more constructive... It was something new, I guess... Again, I want to always challenge myself, and anything I'm not already doing, I want to do more of the other stuff. So I had never written before. I thought I'd give it a shot. And then after that, I directed the next year, which I had never done before, so I thought I'd give it a shot. And then um, I wrote my last year, and that was just more so because I felt comfortable and they needed writers. So I was like, I've already proven myself. <laughs> I've written several 10-minute scenes. Okay, um, I'm very cool at the New Works Festival, <laughs> New uh, New Works Showcase, or whatever, crazy peep. Yeah. Um, and I also Arizona Playmakers. Arizona Playmakers. I'm sorry, plug for ACP and Arizona Playmakers and Audibits. Um, but then I at the same time, my last year, I was also working on Lost in the Tropics as well, so I was kind of doing that as well. So I do want to talk about Lost in the Tropics a little bit more too, but just to kind of dwell into... Scholastic setting. So, I mean, let's now that dwell. you've worked in that, let's dwell. <laughs> <laughs> so, now that you've worked in uh, the professional setting so much, looking back on all the different opportunities you had within the college setting, I mean, how is it different, like going through those processes? Um, I definitely feel like NAU set me up for success in a lot of ways. Uh, just with like being able to do a show that's like a legitimate show, like this is what's the expectation of the actor, and being able to do it in a safe environment. Um, because I know other actors who have done other theater programs where they're just kind of like, we're just going to make it up. Or, you know, actors show up like five minutes before call or five minutes before performances. And it's just like, it just stresses me out when I watch other actors. But I know at NAU, like our call was like an hour to an hour and a half before shows. And so that there was enough time to get into costumes. We even did group warm-ups. 
Um, so I thought like NEU set me up for success in that way. In terms of post-grad and finding jobs, maybe not so much. Interesting. Okay, so uh, actually going out and finding the opportunities that was a little bit different. What I mean, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I would have to say, like, hands down, my favorite class, and I thought the most constructive class that I ever took at NEU was the uh, auditions class. It was like a, a 440 class, which was like an experimental type of course, and Mac Groves uh, taught it. And in that class, we talked about, like, actors' unions. We talked about uh, best cities to work in or to, to live in and work in, um, uh, different theater companies in the Valley, different theater companies elsewhere, SETC, Erda, UPTA, um, you know, those kinds of things, which I was like, I never would have guessed any of this stuff. I, even now, like, I tell actors about SETC and Erda and UPTA, and they're just like, what's that? What is that? So I have to explain that. Um, so I, in, in that way, like, that was, like, the perfect class to take in order to understand what it's like to be a professional actor. Um, so, and for some people, some people move out to LA or move out to New York and are great successes and jump right in head first. Uh, moving down to Phoenix, I just wanted to make sure that outside of the uh, bubble that is NAU that I could still get cast, you know, because you never know. Um, I could do really fantastic at NAU, come down to Phoenix and no one gives a shit. Yeah. You know, like, fuck you, get out of my house. Um, There's a value to that, though, to know that you were like a big fish in a small pond. And uh, Yeah, I guess so, but... <laughs> I didn't want it to happen. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, like, uh, I just remember this moment. So when I went back to high, my high school drama t program, I'd been casting The Misers, my first show at NAU. And I was with my buddy Joe, and we were talking to my drama teacher, and I was like, so I got cast in The Miser. It's a main stage show. It's performed on the Clifford E. White <laughs> stage. It's, it's a big deal, okay. Uh, Kathleen McGeever directed. She's the chair of NEU. I, I, I just, I don't want to gush, but it's important. And then she was like, well, Joe goes to U of A. And I was like, yes, he does. And she goes, well, you're a big fish in a small pond, so. Oh, God. And I was like, well, fuck. <laughs> I'm worthless. <laughs> I uh, definitely, like, uh, it was a wake-up call because I was like, okay, obviously ego is not important because theater is theater. And if you let the ego get into it, then all of a sudden your program or your show or whatever you're doing is more important than anything else. And that's not true. That's a tough thing to deal with, though, because I feel like ego is so ingrained just in creative expression anyways i mean you talked already about like when you write you're putting something personal out on the stage you're making yourself vulnerable i feel like ego is kind of inherently tied to that yeah but i think ego is more akin to clarity um those those who have like a big ego and do really great things out in the world i feel like there's a little bit of clarity to their message you know like if it, like daniel day lewis knows that he's really great because he knows that he can do this 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 and this and he's a method actor and you know he'll live in the wilderness or he'll learn everything there is to know about know about an oil company you know like that's his it's clarity he knows exactly where he's going for it well there's other people who are like ego but they don't actually have some sort of i don't know i guess a message is the best word but um Ego without product is just masturbation. You have, that, all, the only thing you have to show for it is just flushed into the toilet anyways. Yeah, you don't have to ask for a quote later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you take anything away from this podcast. Yes. Let's um, equate everything to masturbation. Actually, a fellow actor, a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, said that I use the word masturbatory too much. And I was like, I frankly don't use it enough. And if there's anything that I'm known for is to be masturbatory with my vocabulary. <laughs> 
You've been masturbatory about being masturbatory, I would say. Yes, quite a bit. And uh, it's a group effort sometimes. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the other facet while we're kind of getting into hard the, pass <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yep that's that was not a, a tactful segue like, great good we are finished with that section and okay. moving on to another part b <laughs> flip your disc uh, well while we're talking about what you did in school um another big facet i feel like of your artistic life has been improv right um so i'm curious again just how that became a factor and because i mean you i think it's safe to say we're a big um a big part of why Naughty Bits, which is the NAU improv troupe, um, kind of has the standing that they were able to have on campus and, and all of that. So, I mean, how were you able to take that on? Why did you get so passionate about that? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I, uh, my first taste of improv was in high school with my buddy Joe. Um, we went to Arizona State Conference as well as International Thespian Festival together and we took some improv workshops and he really was excited about it. I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> I honestly thought Whose Line was a total scam. Like I thought it was scripted. I was like there's no way that they're that funny. Like so I didn't believe it. Uh, and so he was really interested in it. So I kind of took it with him. And I noticed I was like, okay, this seems really weird and bizarre and really hard. Improv for a lot of people is really hard. So when I got to college, I noticed that my freshman year they were doing naughty bits. It was Brian and Shelby with Browby, so you've interviewed them. Um, they kind of tried to revamp naughty bits a little bit, and it fizzled. Um, and that's the improv troupe. And I was like, okay, well, I want to continue to do improv, but there's no improv at NEU. So uh, I think it was like my sophomore or junior year. Um, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to kickstart naughty bits. Um, in order to create some sort of improv. Um, I wanted to come up with a new name, but Kate Ellis, she was like, you know, just stick with that name. Everyone knows it. Naughty Bits had been around for like 10 years or something before I even got there. So alumni knew of it. She's like, it's just name recognition. It's um, part of the language. So I was like, okay, cool. So Naughty Bits. So I got a couple of people together to create the group. Um, and I launched it uh, kind of by myself unfortunately because those people fell off and I was like okay so I'm just gonna do my own improv troupe and when I told people about it I um, kind of got blindsided about it um, other other people in the department they were like well we want the name naughty bits and so we are gonna just take it <laughs> and you can do your own thing so good luck um, and I was like okay well that's not cool uh, so Naughty Bits became incorporated with ASNEU. We were the first theater organization to be officially recognized through ASNEU, even before ACP, which had been there since like 1926. Uh, that so was like a that's big thing. Is like it's the first club on campus too. Yeah, it, was, it, it started the theater program. Like people started ACP and then started doing plays, and then it became a whole department uh, with majors and scholars and everything. Uh, ASNEU was just. Eh. You guys check out the Kesha concert. Well, yeah, exactly. Kesha all the way. T-shirts? Let's give you six. Um, so, yeah, AZP predates ASNEU, but it had never been officially incorporated. It had always been recognized. But um, so I did the right thing. I incorporated a a Naughty Bits into ASNEU. And when I got blindsided with this, I was like, actually, technically, I could take AZP because I'm an official organization and I have funding through ASNEU and I have a lot of allowances. So I could take AZP and I could take ETC and I could even take, you know, USIT, a couple of these organizations. So I was like, you know, I don't understand this political blindsiding. So I was like, you know what? Fine. I will do Naughty Bits by myself. 
I don't have to be a part of the theater department. I will do it by myself. But Kate and Chie, who was the director of AZP at the time, the three of us sat down and we decided that Naughty Bits alone would probably struggle for a couple of years. Um, and so in order to get it right in, ingrained, hit the ground running, it was the best option was to incorporate it into AZP itself. So AZP is one organization and it has two vice presidents. One vice president facilitates AZP, the other vice president facilitates Naughty Bits. And so that was my big moment was to be able to legitimize Naughty Bits immediately. So I was like the first VP of Naughty Bits. And so I started the troupe. We started doing short form. Um, we did a little bit of long form. I really got people excited about it, both in the department and out of the department. And then when I became president of AZP, Travis Marsala, he became the next VP of Naughty Bits. And so he and I worked to continue to grow it. So with Travis at the helm after, after me, um, we started doing monthly performances. We started performing outside of the department. And then the president since, um, like I know Taylor Lumpkin did it after Travis, I think. And then even the president since, like they've been continuously growing it. And I think it's fantastic. Like it's <laughs> awesome. Like every time they do something great, I'm just like, holy shit, like they're doing it. <laughs> they're doing it. Even now looking at like AZP and Naughtybus, I'm like, holy shit, they're so productive. AZP, they're, they're just so productive, and I'm just, like, so proud of them every time I see them. So, I, and, like, that was, like, really, I, I don't know, I guess I really had a, a need for improv in my life. You know, I guess it was, like, salt. You know, sometimes people need more salt. I just needed uh, improv in my life, so I had to forage and create it from nothing, and now Naughty Bits is off and running. What was the appeal about improv? I mean, why did you feel like you, you took to it so so wholly? I, th I just thought that there was, like, an absence of it. I guess... Um, for the theater departments, uh, I did a little bit of AZP, I did a little bit of ETC, um, and those just they just never appealed to me. I guess I just never got energized about it. And so, as I guess as a natural leader, I wanted to forge my own way. Like, am I using forge correctly? I don't know, I feel like it. I created my own path in front of me, and Naughty Bits was the vehicle from which I could do it, and it was something that was a necessity, and it's, I don't know, I guess like any good, like, uh, business owner or entrepreneur sees that there's a need, that there's a want for that need, and then you just create it in order to generate it. And that's exactly what happened is that people needed Naughty Bits, they needed improv, they wanted improv, and people from all over the campus came to see shows, came to participate, audition. So it was really quite awesome. So you did continue improv, though, beyond college, like with names from a hat. So, I mean, there must have been something about the improv itself that, that kind of worked for you that you felt comfortable with or fun with. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think in, in uh, training other people to do improv and doing improv for so long, um, I just it's just something that I just really enjoyed. Um, I found that it was not only challenging, but also a lot of fun. Um, and I, I guess every comedian out there is a whore for laughs. So like to get a couple of cheap laughs in there just makes you feel kind of good. You know, it flexes your ab muscles for those who do crunches. I don't know if anyone out there does crunches, but you'll relate. Um, so when I moved down here, uh, I was looking for uh, audition opportunities, theater companies, and the Outliers popped up, which is a, an improv troupe in town. I don't know if they still exist, but at the time they existed. So I auditioned for them and I got into the troupe and we performed and then Outliers did a joint per, uh, performance with Names From A Hat, which was also an improv troupe in town. And David Raftery, who was the founder of that troupe, came up to me and he's just like, Tony, how do you like being in the Outliers? And I was like, I hate it. 
<laughs> I ate it with every ounce of my fiber of my being, ounce of the fiber of my being. What was the difference? Outliers was more of a commercial uh, improv troupe, I guess. They sold tickets. They expected a certain amount of value, a certain amount of quality, like like a stand-up or something. Like they, like they expect to sell tickets. They have a reputation to uh, withhold, or not withhold, but uphold. uphold. Um, oh, gosh. Um, so that was okay, but I kind of felt like when we weren't doing well, it was now up to the director to try to save it. And I don't like people taking away my good fortune and my talent in order to succeed for themselves. So I was like, I don't like that. So when I met David, David and uh, the Names from a Hat guys, they were just such a team. They were a group. They were an ensemble. And I was jealous of them. So, like, when David asked me, I told him honestly, you know. Um, He asked an honest question, a direct question, and I really respected that. He saw through the bullshit and got to me quickly. And, I, you know, ever since that moment, I was like, man, this guy totally gets it. So David Raftery, who's done improv all over Arizona now, um, he's been with the Jesters. He's starting his own improv uh, workshops. Great guy. Knows exactly what he's talking about. One of the best people I've ever known. Um, he just struck me like a like a lightning strike. And from there, I was hooked on names from a hat. So I like left Outliers and then moved on to names from a hat. And I was with them for like two years before they were absorbed by Jesters. Gotcha. Okay. So, going back in time a little bit then, so we're getting into the professional world. So, before um, you left Flagstaff, you put up your own written and directed show, which was, well, I guess you didn't end up directing the final product, but, and and one one form or another, but Lost in the Tropics. So, I really want to go into that and about why that was... That was the idea that you put so much of your time and energy into, since I've known that you've had so many different ideas that you've created. Like, why, why that one? Why was that so important? And why, why the format you chose? Why a musical? Okay, so I, uh, gosh, so I worked with Chase Coleman, who uh, is one of the best p- uh, pianists that has ever existed. Like, Chase, just so you know, I know that you're great. <laughs> Chase is, like, one of my closest friends. I love him to death, and he is just so driven and so detail-oriented that we had talked about, we did a uh, funny thing happened on the way of the forum, uh, my first summer up in Flag. And I mentioned, you know, I was like, I'm a writer. I'm interested in writing musicals as well as plays. And he's like, I've always wanted to write a musical. He's a couple of years old. He's like a couple, uh, like I guess like 20, 30 years older than me. Um, but he's like, I've always wanted to do it. So if you want to write a musical, let's do it. And I was like, cool. So I took him up on his offer. I felt like it was an honest uh, response. So I was like, cool, let's do it. And so I sent him a couple of uh, story ideas, and Tropics was the one that he felt closest about. Um, he likes the is, Tropics is like a, a, I guess like a typical rom com sort of feeling, um, and he really liked that. He said. I mean, I guess in a true uh, capitalist sort of feeling, he was like, people love romantic comedies, people love the love bullshit, and so they really will buy tickets to it. Um, So I was like, okay, cool, whatever. Um, And so he and I worked in tandem uh, writing the script and the score. He gave me notes about the story. I gave him notes about the music. So we were really quite a team for it. And so um, with his drive, he wanted to produce something now. 
And with my drive of wanting to produce something now, we produce something as quickly as possible. So we, uh, we wrote a rough draft and we did it as a staged reading and it was well received. And so we wanted to put it up on its feet. And so that's the performance that you were in, Tony, that you uh, played Lou. And so that was a performance that was staged by Travis Marsala. Um, and each iteration, we tried to adapt and try to adjust the script to make it better to make it stronger and from the first iteration to the second iteration we added four characters and then from the second iteration to third the third iteration we cut the cast down to six so we're just kind of all over the place um and it was primarily because of me as a new writer i wanted to experiment with this experiment with that i wanted to try this some things worked some things didn't i got notes from other people from actors and so trying to incorporate all that information I ended up being like a hodgepodge of ideas, and Chase, um, to his credit, was all about it, gung-ho about it. And unfortunately, Tropics is kind of in this like Frankenstein mode where we have pieces from different scripts and it's not really complete, um, but it was just a way for me to experience or experiment and a way for me to learn how to write while having Chase there, who's a great writer, who's able to tell me what works and doesn't. So I want to talk a little bit more about the kind of the... Uh the collaborative uh, project uh, part of that just like the idea of working with someone whose whose specialty is the music while well, your specialty is the story and the specialty is the words so like how do you guys kind of work off of each other in that way what did the actual technical process look like for you guys so, so uh, Chase and I we would meet sporadically sometimes weekly monthly um, and we I would I would write some uh, scenes or I would write I ended up writing a full script to give to him with like sections blocked out that I thought could be good songs and Chase would be working on music on his own time and when we would meet he would tell me what parts of the stories he liked the characters um, moments in the script that he thought there could be music that there shouldn't be music and he was very uh, tuned into the script and being able to be like this is a terrible moment to have a song but this is a moment we need to explore um, and so Chase being a great teacher really helped me and was very uh, careful with my learning process so like I would give him suggestions for music and he'd be like that's really my call I would like to keep it this way and me being open and uh, honest I'm like that's a great idea I'll step back I overstepped so he and I kind of played um I guess we kind of played like a game of tennis where like one of us would have the, the, the control and the other one would be passing. Um, but Chase was really a great teacher. He, he listened to me. He was able to give me feedback as well as being able to tell me honestly, dude, shut up. That has nothing to do with you. Or I'd give him a suggestion. He'd be like, that was a terrible suggestion. I have no idea what you mean. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't even know what I was meaning. I just <laughs> said something. I just cobbled some words together. So did you come into that with just like a story treatment, just a, a inkling of an idea? What did you have like that you brought to him that he's like, I can put music into this? I came up with a basic story. It was Georgia and Ty. Uh, Georgia was having a mid or quarter life crisis, so she traveled to Fiji and she met this guy Ty. That was about it. Um, and he was like, "Okay, well, give me more." So I ended up writing an entire first draft 
of the script and I still have it. It's, it's like 120 pages and there's like 16 characters in it. It's not bad. <laughs> there's some pretty good funny scenes. Like there's even like, uh, uh, what's his name? Lloyd is the, the sidekick character. Lloyd uh, dresses up as a ninja in the first draft to, in order to like uh, contrive this situation where George's purse would get stolen and Ty would save her, right. like be the hero, uh, which I cut. And, but I forgot a scene that I didn't cut. So in the performance that you did, somewhere Lloyd has a ninja star and he throws it in the air and it disappears. And then that's it. <laughs> it never comes back. So, you know, so they, over the process, it just became just a way to figure out where we're going, I guess. That kind of brings me to my next thing I'm curious about is uh, just the fact that you've had so many different performances of this. You've had at least three public performances, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so in between all these different drafts, like how do you how do you approach the new draft? Do you start from page one, or do you go back and kind of Frankenstein something together? How do you know what to you know focus on? So through Tropics, I have learned that um, once you have written a story, keep the story. Once you're done, finish. Because um, with Tropics, is that the first draft I wrote. I like. It's actually quite charming. I could probably cut the music out and keep the story itself. Uh, with some tweaks, it's a little lame. Um, uh, maybe a little juvenile, but I like it. But then the second script was so different from the first script. And then the third script is even more different that I ended up writing three different shows that just happened to have the same characters in it. And they weren't even like sequels. They were just completely different shows. Are the themes the same? Or is it, or? The themes even changed because, like, in the first draft, we had a Greek chorus, which was like George's conscience. Then the second draft, we actually had she was having like a quarter life crisis, so she was having like people talking in her ear. Like, she had like a Dr. Jackie, and her parents were like ghosts in a way. And by the third draft, I had cut the quarter life crisis and focused on the relationships. So that it, it just it morphed into three different stories. And so Chase made a great point. He was like, stop changing the story. Let's just fix what we've, what's wrong. And that's where I've stopped. So, Do you feel like any of the, like the, the assets that you had available to you influenced the way you were writing? Because, I mean, if you're in a college setting when you're starting it, you have access to people. You potentially have access to facilities, you know, to put it up. Whereas when I know that, like, near coming down to the, the last few drafts, like, it was something where you might not have been able to just have access to a steady supply of actors nearby, and you might have had to find a venue on your own and stuff. Did that change how you were approaching the story? Do you have to keep that in mind, or were you just trying to do a carte blanche? I guess letting my privilege talk is I just assumed, you know, like a field of dreams, if you build it, they will come. And I was fortunate enough that three times, I was three of three, that I got people to come. Um, the third time was definitely a challenge, even with the cast of six, because we our uh, tie was like our last person cast, and we had to hunt him down. So Aaron Wilson was our tie, and we had to track someone down to play that role. Because unfortunately, you know, there are four, more female actors than male actors out there, and we only needed two men, um, but it was hard. Um, the first draft, uh, I guess the first production that we did, there was a... a uh, workshops happening in the theater space 
So uh, APO, uh, they set up these like Alpha Psi Omega. Alpha Psi Omega. They, sorry, I'm sorry. APO. Um, they set up these like brown bag seminars on Fridays where they would teach different sort of you know like how to tie knots or how to you know do a slip stitch or whatever. Um, and I talked to Emily Cook about it. I was like, can I steal one of these brown bags to do a stage reading of this musical? And she was very. Uh, very helpful and she's like absolutely so I was like okay so that was Chase's and my deadline we're like we're gonna do this this is our first opportunity so that really drove completing the first draft in terms of number of actors or how the story came to be it really we just got lucky because we I think our first cast was like 16 people um, and then the second cast was like, I think like 15 or 14 people. I don't know. Like, um, we just got very lucky with the actors that we had. Um, and by the time we did it a third time, that was one thing I was worried about because we had a hard time finding a Lloyd for the second show. And so I was like, well, maybe we need to cut Lloyd. He didn't seem to work out for the script. He was just kind of a breast, best friend, breast, a best friend character. Uh, hey, yo. Hey, yo. Uh, so trying to be more judicious with it, we turned Lou into Annie and combined those two roles so that we could cast a woman in it. Um, and so we had a cast of four females and two males for the last show, and that was a challenge. So that was something, as a writer, I learned that having large casts tend to be non-economical, um, especially this day and age. So, like, Child's Play, for instance, we have a cast of five, but we have, like, over 30 characters that we play. So it gets challenging. You can't have a large cast like that anymore unless you're doing a free show. Let's, let's jump into that then. So now that you have completed this show and you've kind of moved on, that was, I feel like almost kind of a good transition between like the school and the professional world is being able to produce the show yourself. Right. So now that you've moved down to Phoenix, uh, do you immediately start auditioning? Sorry, what was your question? Right. So what was your kind of transitionary period getting back into things? Yeah, so um, Rachel and I moved down here in April, and like the first weekend we were down here, uh, Phoenix Theater was holding auditions, so I signed up for that audition real quick. Oh, wow. And so my first weekend I had an audition. So no trepidation, nothing, yeah. No, I, I was like, okay, they do season auditions, so I have to do it now. So I auditioned for like three different companies within the first month that we were here, and I sucked at all of them, I'll admit. They were bad. Um... But I was like, I'm glad I did it because now I kind of understand what they were looking for. Like my first audition, when I went into my PT audition, I was late. I had one copy of my headshot and resume and they wanted three. I went up on my monologue. I went up on my song. I was all over the place. They were very nice. But I was just like, I totally, I, the worst thing you could do in an audition, I did all of them at once. So I was like, okay, now I have a baseline. <laughs> now all I can do is go up. Um, so yeah, I didn't really wait and uh, I tried to be more selective in my audition choices as well as I only auditioned for uh, theaters that paid uh, having a degree and having somewhat of a, uh, a resume. I was like, I feel like I am worth money. Uh, so I only wanted to audition for those companies. Uh, People Richard, who might have listened to this podcast before know that's something that I've, I've definitely touched on a lot is just the idea of an actor's worth and kind of how what decides it, decides it. So, I mean, do you feel like it's really kind of the paperwork behind it that made the difference for you? or uh, The paperwork? Well, just the idea that you said you had a degree, you came from college, you know, you had this kind of resume behind you. Yeah. I guess, uh, what does the Joker say in The Dark Knight? <laughs> <laughs> Where... <laughs> If you're ever good at something, don't never do it for free. Um, so to, to go back to Mary Giraldi, so when I worked my first professional show, she told me she was like, 
if you are worth money, say you're worth money because otherwise someone will screw you over. So there are some people out there, unfortunately or fortunately, that they know that their first thing to cut in a budget is to cut actors' wages. Why? Because actors will still show up. Actors will still want to do Sweeney Todd. You know, if you want someone to play Mrs. Lovett, it doesn't matter how much you pay. You could pay zero and people will still show up and do a quality job. Why? I don't know, because they want to do that show. So I've had a lot of conversations with actors in town, professional, non-professional, and it's pretty split. Um, For me, I will probably never work for a company unless there's some sort of pay that comes with it. Not only is it more like I'm worth money and I feel like I'm worth money and if I'm being paid, I know that I will step up and do a professional job. But also if a company is willing to pay, they will also meet you halfway. Because some of those companies that don't pay, they won't meet you halfway. The, The tech is bad or the designs are bad or people don't show up, people flake out. It's, if you're doing it for free, it's all on volunteer and you can't hold people accountable. So working with Mary, she had people that she was paying to come help paint the set and they didn't show up on time. And she goes, because I'm paying, I can say, show up at 8 a.m. or I'll find somebody else. If you're volunteering, you just have to take it. Okay, so sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off before, but no. that's the point I wanted to make on that's there good, too. Yeah. Um, so, all right, so you uh, made a point to make sure you were auditioning for only actors, uh, only companies that paid. So go on from that. Right. Um, so, how were you? Uh, how long, I guess, until you you started seeing some results from that, and were you having to make conscious changes along the way? Or? Yeah, so I was always adapting. I got new headshots. Uh, I try to be more um, cognizant of what people wanted. Um, so I did a lot, like research into the actual theater companies. I sat down with the very few people that I knew in town, like Richard Warren, um, for instance, who's over at PT. He's a playwright, great guy, totally helped me out. So if anybody needs any help in the Phoenix Valley, talk to Richard or you can talk to me. Um, having someone who knows the landscape was so indelible, was so helpful. So if anybody's moving to a new theater location, if you know one person that's actually working in the field, try and talk to them get them for coffee buy them lunch dinner buy them a watch whatever it's got to be get them to sit down and spill because it was so helpful he told me like 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 these eight or nine companies pay they're legitimate they do good work go and see them and so like i started to try and see plays i tried to talk to actors i tried to do research and to find out who these people are and he told me one of the things he told me that I really latched onto first. He's like, if people are doing readings of plays, do those. He's like, stage readings, even informal readings, whatever it is, do a reading of some new work. Why? Because not only is it a small commitment, like whenever I do a reading for a play I'm doing, or if I do a reading for somebody else, it's usually like one day. You can suck it up for one day and volunteer um, to do that show. Not only do you get exposure, um, but there are actually going to be people there to see it. You know, not only for the other actors in the show, but also the playwright. Um, they want to be there. So someone, some big wig, small wig, whoever cares how big their wig is, they're going to be in the audience to see that. Um, and it'll be a quick and easy way for you to get up on stage. So uh, the first opportunity that I had to do a reading was with Larissa Brewington. She's a local playwright. She is awesome. Um, I sent her my information. I auditioned for her. She called me back. She cast me in a reading that she did. And she was just such a great person to know firsthand. Uh, She ended up uh, staging one of her pieces, which is a 10-minute piece that I was able to do. So it was my first 
uh, gig in town. Unfortunately, she couldn't pay because it was a new work, but she did give me a copy of the show. Um, and I met some people that were in the show as well as people that were seeing the show. And so I talked to them and I friended them on Facebook and it was all about networking. So that little thing that do just even volunteering to do this reading led to so many other opportunities. And so, um, when I was out there auditioning, going to different shows, I oftentimes asked Larissa if she would recommend them because she was a professional working in the, in the space, Richard as well as the actor. So I just, I ended up wanting to do a good job and doing my due diligence and some, you know, that's what I recommend to anybody is making sure you do your research and know what you're getting yourself into. Some companies, they are more musical theater driven, like Phoenix Theater, for instance. They do a lot of musicals, so make sure that you have a good musical piece and that you're prepared to dance. Other companies don't do any musicals, or they do some musicals, like Child's Play. They do like one, maybe two musicals a year, so theater, like play work is what they do, but they have performances for young audiences, so that's a different style. So catering your audition pieces for that was also helpful to know. So I have kind of noticed that over the years, like you, you specifically started working consistently with seem like theater works and Southwest Shakespeare were two of the kind of the predominant companies. So was there something that stuck out about those? Did you just make a connection with the people? Do you think, or was it the type of work they did? Uh, well, Theater Works was a is a semi professional company. They offer equity contracts. So anybody that offers equity contracts is a that's a clear signal that they're professional. They're willing to be professional, or they're striving to be professional. So I auditioned for Theater Works. Uh, so, yeah, so I auditioned for Theater Works, and um, I just kind of threw my all in there, and fortunately, they liked what they saw. They thought I had something going. I'm not the best singer, but I have a lot of uh, character, I guess, <laughs> so I can just fuck it up and make it look good, in a way. Um, and so being a schmuck really helps with musical theater, apparently. So, like, I did my audition, they called me back, and then I was cast in uh, Cuckoo's Nest there. And then I was also cast in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And the director of uh, How to Succeed was Toby Yatso, who um, is a Phoenix Theater darling, who's been professional in town. He's an equity actor. Um, he really took a liking to me. I really tried to uh, uh, massage, or not massage, but, like, really tried to... Um, um, keep that relationship whole, um, try to do a good job, be professional. Um, there were some actors that showed up late or gave nasty remarks on under their breath or really kind of fucked it up. I didn't want to be one of those actors. I worked with Ben Tyler, who directed Cuckoo's Nest. I ended up working with Ben Tyler again, doing um, uh, Merry Wives at Southwest. So when I auditioned for Merry Wives, or when I auditioned for Southwest, Jared saw that Ben was on my resume and was like, oh, you worked with Ben Tyler, he's directing Merry Wives. Um, so Ben De Tyler was directing Mary Wives and Jared Sakrin, who is the artistic director at Southwest, he saw that. So it was like one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. So he asked Ben about me. Ben said, oh, he's funny. So Jared offered me a contract with, uh, with Southwest. And so he was like, well, we're also doing this and this and this. And so it just kind of snowballs from there is being able to know um, people in the Valley, being able to harness those relationships and really keeping them a professional relationship and keeping them intact. Because... Uh, again, I see actors who just kind of fuck it up, and I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing? You <laughs> fucking idiot. This person is a good person to know. I don't care if you disagree with them on your character or, like, you wanted to move left and they wanted you to move right. Suck it up. Yeah. Be a professional. So, <laughs> so now you're working with Child's Play. Um, and oh, so yeah, you've Child's done... Child's Play. I shouldn't be saying the F word somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, So you've worked with them on a few shows now. So how is that different from what you've done before, you know, working in this kind of theater for young audiences type of setting? 
Yeah, so I auditioned for Child's Play ever since I got into town for five years. Um, and I think what was really holding me back especially was that Child's Play, because they're um, for theater for young audiences as well as oftentimes we'll be playing somebody who's like 10, 20 years younger than you. Like I played Zachary last year and he was a nine-year-old is that it's a different style of acting and it's just something I had never encountered before. And so working with uh, another local actor, Ocides, um, she really helped me understand exactly what that entailed. Um, so, uh, yeah, Child's Play is just, it's just a different, I guess, it's just a different type of theater. Like, musical theater is different, or comedies, improv, it's all different kinds of theater. That's something you just kind of have to practice a little bit and get into it? Okay. Yeah, it's, you just either know it or you don't know it, and yeah, you just got to practice it, I guess. Another component of that is the touring aspect of it, too. Um, so, what is... What has touring been like? How is that different from another performance, just being able to kind of throw that up on your own? Yeah, so the tour, at least for Grumpiest Boys, we perform like 180 sometimes or something like that. I have no idea. Actually, I could be it could be 3,000, it could be 12. I have no idea. But um, I didn't ever keep track of it. But we performed so many times to do the same show over and over and over again. Um, was really interesting because at NAU we did like eight performances and other shows I've done we maybe do like 12 performances. So to do a show over a hundred times um, was a challenge. To, not only to keep the, the material fresh, but to also keep it interesting and to not just totally like shit all over it. And, you know, because you can sit back on your heels or you could be up on your toes and I wanted to be up on my toes the whole time. Um, so I definitely think that that was a struggle, especially towards the end of the tour, to make it interesting and fresh as well as informative. And Grumpiest Boy was like a 45 minute like seizure so uh to, in order to have the energy to do it was quite a challenge would you say that's kind of one of the biggest differences or uh within like the tya thing is just keeping the energy at 150 percent or i don't know if that's specific or um exclusive for tya um, because every show you need to have energy i think the difference being is that i guess in a way you have to make sure that you're continuously being honest because even if you're playing like a rain cloud or you're playing like a monkey like you still have to be honest to the character and genuine because otherwise kids are the most again they're the most honest audience they will tell you when you're doing well and they will tell you when you're not if you're doing well they'll be cheering clapping you know laughing uh, if you're not doing well they're going to be playing with their buttons and talking to their friends about what they're going to eat for lunch well, I think kind of time to wrap it up. Last couple of things I like to ask. So one thing I like to ask everybody um, is just anybody else in town doesn't have to be an actor. You know, any artist in town that you want to give some recognition to. You know, who do you want to shout out? Uh, I guess um, I'll probably have to shout out David Raftery a little bit more because he has left Jester's, but he's doing his own improv training courses. Uh, what is it called? It's called Da Vinci training or something like that um i don't know he just started it um i've looked at some of his information he's still performing and i think he's quality stuff he's on top of it um if you ever get a chance if you want to do improv or even see improv always see local improv support your local improv troops um if you're ever interested in doing theater or seeing theater just find a theater company in town to go see theater especially a theater company like child's play if you have any youngins or if you want to see quality theater child's play always does quality stuff it's really good no matter what age you are yeah, yeah it's, it's not just it's not like pandering it's not pedantic like i the first show that i saw 
after moving down here is I saw Wrinkle in Time, and that show was so good. I saw it like three other times, and it, it was, I guess, a little below my age range, but not really because like I read Wrinkle in Time, and I, like I've seen the movie, and I was really involved with it, and it was so good that like I've never seen a show over there that I ever thought was like, ah, this is little kid stuff. Yeah. So Child's Play always. Uh, the thing I'd like to ask is uh, any personal plugs you have coming out? Uh, Websites? Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, I'm still doing Phantom Tollbooth. It's running through October 15th. There are public showings on the weekends. Oh, this is going to come out the 18th. <laughs> okay, never mind then. This is pass. Uh, okay. Uh, in the past, on October 8th, I'm doing a reading of a new show that I wrote. Uh, it's called Jealous Monster. I put the script out on Facebook, so if you'd like to read it, I would strongly recommend it. Trigger warning, there's some pretty intense stuff, uh, things that happen in it. Um, coming up in the future, in January, I will be performing with Phoenix Theater in their production of It's Only a Play. Uh, it'll be my first show with Phoenix Theater, and I'll be working with a lot of really, really talented and really uh, well-known people, so I hope I don't fuck it up, <laughs> uh, which would be pretty easy to do. Um, that's coming up in January. Other than that, I'm keeping quiet, um, continuously trying to do uh, side projects, film projects. I'm still auditioning for things, so who knows? There may be more coming out the pipeline. When you're putting a project out, like the reading or something like that, where can people see information about that? Should they follow you on Facebook? Do you just go through DirectCom? Uh, yeah, so uh, follow me on Facebook, definitely. Uh, my actor page is where I keep all of that information. Uh, if you don't want to see any political stuff, definitely follow my <laughs> actor page and only my actor page. Um, I just keep, it's just sort of a bulletin board. This is what's next. This is what I'm doing. Um, so, yeah, find that page. You can also follow me on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Tumblr. I think my handle is paperbagactor. Um, or Tony Latham, of course, on Facebook, if you can find me that way as well. You can add me. I'll probably add you back. If I don't like what you do, I'll unfollow you, but we'll still be friends. <laughs> <laughs> You'll just never know. <laughs> You'll never know. You can unfollow me. We'll both never know. We'll just go on our daily lives. <laughs> Honesty. Uh, <laughs> uh, last thing I'd like to ask, though, um, you've already dropped some other good gyms so far, but anything that you think uh, would be a good piece of advice for someone just starting their artistic path low? Uh, uh, so some advice I give to fellow actors I'd say is um, if you're new to an area find someone that you know or meet somebody that's actually working that you can ask them questions and they're willing to help you out I find that most professional actors and most professional theater people want to help other people where it's just like an innate human uh, ability is to help um, so find somebody in your area uh, also if you get cast in something find the most professional person in the cast and do what they're doing um, that's what I learned is other actors I saw would show up half an hour before their call. They would stretch. They would warm up their voices. They would do their makeup early. They would say thank you. They would know everyone's names who are helping it. They would talk to people backstage. So find that most professional person that you can find, someone who's consistently working, and just emulate that. Um, yeah, I guess just, just if you want to do it, be good at it. Um, but also know your worth. If you are worth money don't do anything for free because another person may say oh you want to be paid you know for this show well i saw you did this other show for free so it couldn't have been you can't be that good you know you're willing to work for free so you can work for free for me now so never put yourself in that position that's excellent know your worth 
take it seriously, find someone to emulate who knows what they're doing. I love it. All right, Tony Latham, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I'm glad I was able to talk for an hour. <laughs> Special thanks to Nick Machete for writing our theme music and Taylor Machete for all of her support. If you are enjoying the podcast so far, don't forget to follow us and leave nice ratings on Facebook, Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Pinecast.co. And if you or someone you know is pursuing something artistic in the Phoenix area and you'd like to be on the podcast, write to me at starvingartistsphx at gmail.com.